Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Has the Supreme Court lost the American people? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I'm obviously not asking this question in a vacuum. As of today, we're a few weeks removed from the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Dobbs is a massively consequential decision, a terrible decision, in my opinion and arguably a watershed moment for the court. Whatever your politics and whatever you think of abortion, this much is clear. The court made a self-conscious choice to unsettle established law. And that choice is a political choice. It was a decision to intervene when intervention was not required. Now that we've had some time to process not just this case, but some of the other extreme opinions from the court's most recent term, on everything from gun rights to environmental regulation, I wanted to bring on an expert to help us think it all through. Nico Bowie is a Harvard Law professor and a former clerk for Justice Sotomayor. And he writes about the issues at the core of this conversation. Last year, when President Biden's commission on the Supreme Court was gathering testimony from lawyers, scholars, and court experts, Bowie's voice stood out. But I think our commitment to democracy demands that we be honest about the harm the Supreme Court as an institution causes. We are all harmed when some of us can't afford health care because the court declared the expansion of Medicaid unconstitutional. We are all harmed when some of us cannot vote because the court rendered the Voting Rights Act ineffective. And we are all harmed when some of our younger colleagues are harassed at the beginning of their legal careers by judges to whom no one ever says no. No, no, no. Bowie and I talk about the history and role of the court, whether these conservative justices sacrificed the court's legitimacy for the sake of political power, and if he sees any path to reform that might save the court from itself. 
Professor Nico Bowie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's been a few weeks since Roe was overturned. The draft opinion obviously was leaked months ago. We all kind of knew this was coming. But what was your reaction when it actually happened? My immediate reaction was sadness. Sadness that rights that millions of people have taken for granted for the past 50 years have suddenly been taken away and that people's lives are about to be upended and it's only going to get worse. So as far as just the practical effects of the opinion, it just felt really sad. I think legally it was expected. The conservative members of the Supreme Court have been saying for almost the past 50 years, not quite, that this was their objective. It's why they were selected to join the court in the first place. And so when they got the opportunity, I think it would have been a surprise had they not taken it. So I think the Dobbs decision was catastrophic. I'm not pretending otherwise. I suspect you feel similarly, though I don't want to presume too much. But I do think it's important, at least at the beginning here, to ask you to briefly steel man the conservative legal case here, if you can. And I'll help start this off because one of the things I have heard the most from defenders of this decision is something like this. The argument is, look, settle down. All we have done is simply return power to the states here. That's it. What is your response to that? Well, abortion is one of those issues like what should our democracy look like or how are we going to respond to climate change? That it's a fundamental issue that all of us care about very deeply. And for these really fraught fundamental issues that the entire country has an interest in, I think the basic question is which institutions or which forums will be responsible for resolving these questions. And so I think in a democracy, you would expect that this would be resolved democratically. And there might be some reasons why the democracy would delegate certain questions to an undemocratic group. But in general, you would think that the most important questions facing the country would be resolved by the country in which every person is treated as a political equal. So Congress has weighed in here. Congress drafted a 14th Amendment in which it guaranteed the equal protection of law and guaranteed the privileges and immunities of citizenship and the due process rights of all people. The amendment the American people ratified in 1868 gave Congress power to enforce its terms. Congress passed a law that's currently known by 42 U.S.C. 1983, in which it tells federal courts to prohibit states from depriving these federally guaranteed rights. And so to suggest that when a court just returns an issue to the states as though state legislatures are the default forum for resolving these questions, I think begs the question, why should state legislatures resolve this rather than Congress or the courts, frankly? And so while my own politics suggest that I would rather this be decided by a national legislature, to the extent that the national legislature delegates certain questions to the courts and says, courts, you figure this out, and the courts come to a conclusion and they say, we think that this language that you have drafted and proposed protects the right to abortion. We think that states are depriving this right. And so correct us if we're wrong, but until then, we're just going to keep enforcing this right. I think that's the default presumption that democracy would adopt. But to suggest that, oh, you know, 
we no longer appreciate this role. We think that state legislatures should be in charge of our country just reflects a different type of political arrangement than I think I would want to live under. The conservatives on the court seem very eager to have people believe that the court is actually maintaining a position of neutrality on the question of fundamental rights here. Again, throwing it back to the states. Is neutrality actually possible in principle in a case like this? No. (laughs) No. I mean, keep in mind what's being decided is whether some words that were drafted 150 years ago that Congress 150 years ago told courts to interpret protect abortion rights. And those words are like equal protection of law and due process or deprivation of liberty or life without due process of law. And so there's no neutral answer to the question of whether the deprivation of liberty without due process of law or denying or abridging the privileges and immunities of citizenship or denying the equal protection of the law requires or prohibits an abortion ban. The words just don't say anything about it. And so to suggest that neutrality would lead to an answer, I think, is misguided. I think any interpretation is going to be justified by certain normative principles. Like, do you believe in the dignity and equal citizenship of pregnant people? Do you think that fetuses are individuals who should have rights of citizenship? Do you think that what equal protection requires is whatever a state legislature thinks? I mean, these are just the normative principles underlying any interpretation of this language. And so to suggest that one is more neutral than the others, I think, is just to put your thumb on the scale and say, my normative principles are neutral to me, and yours are activism. Right. And I guess the other talking point, as it were, I've heard is that, and this is something that comes directly out of the language of the majority opinion, and the claim is that the right to abortion has no constitutional basis, that it was just invented. And I'm not a lawyer, I'm a political theorist, but I read that, I hear that, and I say to myself, well, all rights were invented. The law was invented. Why is that an argument against or for anything? Is that a foolish, glib way to think about it, or how do you think about it as a lawyer? Yeah, no, I don't think that's glib at all. Again, I just go back to the question of which institutions do you think should resolve these really fundamental questions? And so over the past 150 years, culturally, the United States as a whole has moved toward the position that for these really fraught political questions, they would be best resolved by taking a bunch of law school graduates ideally from Harvard or Yale, maybe Notre Dame, and ask them, what do you think? And when you read the term equal protection of law, do you think that that prohibits a law that criminalizes seeking an abortion or inducing an abortion? Do you think that the language that prohibits deprivation of life, liberty, or property without due process of law protects a fetus? Or does it require pregnant people to carry through the pregnancy and bear a child. And so it's really just a question of which institution do you think should be responsible for creating or rearticulating or defending these rights? So to give a more basic example, nothing in the Constitution requires a Civil Rights Act 
It's not as though the Constitution says anything explicitly about if an employer denies someone employment because of their race. But in 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act. It created a right, and it created a right using its constitutional prerogatives. It said, we have the power to regulate commerce. We can pass necessary and proper legislation. We interpret the Constitution to permit us to protect a right to employment without regard to your race or sex or national origin or religion, etc. And so that's a right that was created by Congress. And no one thinks, I mean, people at the time thought twice about it. People today might think the Civil Rights Act should be overturned. But I think most people in the United States would think, yeah, that makes sense that there is a right to obtain employment without racial discrimination or without religious discrimination, without discrimination on the basis of sex or sexual orientation. And so when people talk about creating rights, what they're talking about is, I don't think a court should be responsible for reading this old language and articulating it in a modern application that may not have been anticipated. And so they object to a court doing that. And, you know, frankly, that's what courts do. The reason why courts interpret law is because the you know, laws as written do not anticipate every future contingency. Right. And this isn't an original point, but this interpretive game the court is playing where Justice Alito insists that the court, quote, finds that the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, end quote. That seems to be something very different from what I think most people imagine justices are actually doing. They seem to be removing their lawyer hats and replacing them with historian hats. Or is that just a false distinction? Is this just what justices have always done in practice? Yeah, so I would just go back to the point that the Constitution is just super vague. Yeah. So there are just very few things in 2022 that the words of the Constitution offer a very clear answer about. And even the things where you would think that the text of the Constitution itself is very clear, like the First Amendment begins, Congress shall make no law and follows it with things like establishing religion or abridging free exercise or free speech or the press. Every interpreter of that language has recognized, well, it doesn't literally mean no law. It doesn't literally just apply to Congress. It also applies to other people in the federal government. It's a matter of interpretation. It's like, okay, we have this text. What should we do with it? And in general, what both members of Congress, members of state legislatures, what judges have done when reading the text of the Constitution and figuring out what does it mean here is they invent a test. So the language Congress shall make no law, maybe we could have an absolute test that just ban any law that restricts free speech. But in general, the rule is, well, if Congress has a really good reason and its law is narrowly tailored to achieve that reason, Congress can make a law abridging free speech or the press or free exercise. So that's known as a means-ends test. And means-ends tests are just everywhere in constitutional law. So you see something that looks like it deprives someone of equal protection of the law. What courts have done for the past 50 years is they said, okay, so if this law violates a really important principle or it discriminates on a ground that we think is really suspect, like race, then you need a really good reason for this law. Otherwise, we're going to strike it down. But with most laws, you just need a reason. In fact, you can invent it on the spot and we'll uphold it. 
And so means ends tests are everywhere. And it's not the only test. And one thing that the court did a lot this past term is it's taken these means ends tests and said, actually, we don't like this type of test in all settings. So when it comes, for example, to the Second Amendment in the Bruin case, Justice Thomas said, forget the means ends test that lower courts have been applying for the past 15 years. Instead, we're going to apply a presumption that all gun restrictions are unconstitutional unless someone can look through history and tradition and come up with an analogous problem that state legislatures in the early 19th century intended to solve. And in the case of what rights does the 14th Amendment protect, Justice Alito and his predecessors, including Chief Justice Rehnquist 25 years ago, have taken the position that, in general, the 14th Amendment should not protect unenumerated rights unless you can define this right at the lowest level of generality, look through history and tradition, and find that state legislatures have recognized that right over time. And so nothing in the Constitution says one test is better than the other. It doesn't say anything about these tests. It's just a matter of picking which test you think is going to advance your normative principles. You said publicly that this decision, the Dobbs decision in particular, is a repudiation of what is often called legal liberalism. What does that mean? So legal liberalism is just the shorthand for the idea that the best theory of change, the best argument for how does change happen in our society is, especially on the left, that liberal lawyers can convince judges to interpret the Constitution and laws in a liberal direction that you can take old documents like the Constitution or statutes, and so long as you can come up with a reasonable, persuasive argument for how to interpret it, lawyers can persuade judges not to let things get out of hand. So legal liberalism is behind the idea that when a president does something just absolutely outrageous, that one of the arrows in a quiver will be going to the courts and telling the courts to stop the president from doing something absurd or stop legislatures from doing something bad. And legal liberalism is basically the dominant theory of change in elite American law schools. If you have attended any law school over the past 50 years and taken a course in constitutional law or administrative law, one story that is often told is basically the story of how progressive groups have used the courts to make the country better. So, for example, before 1937, federal courts were striking down labor laws and economic protections to help people survive the Great Depression. But through creative legal arguments, the Supreme Court ultimately reversed course and started upholding these sorts of things. Or lawyers like Thurgood Marshall used legal arguments to ban racial segregation, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg used legal arguments to ban sex discrimination, and conservative lawyers like Jim Bopp used legal arguments to ban campaign finance laws, or in this case, abortion restriction. But that going through the courts and getting courts to make these sorts of change is the dominant theory of change presented in law schools. And I think what the decision like Dobbs reveals is that there are a lot of assumptions about the way the world works that underlies legal liberalism or the idea that the left can rely on courts to 
change society around them. And one of the basic assumptions is just that the people on these courts are going to be amenable to arguments that the law should be interpreted in a particular way. And empirically, that may have been true when someone like Justice Kennedy was on the court for his whole career, in which he did seem amenable to certain styles of argument and did sometimes agree with the court's more liberal members that, for example, something like affirmative action should be upheld or that abortion law should not all be upheld. But when there's a 6-3 conservative majority on the court, that whole theory of change seems a lot less persuasive for someone on the left. For someone on the right, it might be extremely persuasive. Like, oh yeah, the way in which conservatives are going to achieve their policy objectives doesn't have to go through Congress. It can just go through sympathetic state legislatures supported by sympathetic federal judges. But on the left, I think what the past term reveals is just legal liberalism may not be a theory of change about the quality of a lawyer's argument so much as a confluence of all sorts of other considerations like what social movements are doing, who has political power, whether courts are sympathetic to these sorts of arguments. In other words, it may just be a contingent story about the 30 years that followed 1937. And it's not just Dobbs. We're talking about gerrymandering and voting rights. There's the recent case that you alluded to a second ago in New York, the gun case overturning a century-old law against concealed carry. The even more recent decision stripping the federal government of important tools to fight pollution. These are all signs of the court's new, I don't know what to call it. They're just in a rock and roll era where they're just going to go. They got the numbers and they're going to go. Are we talking about an outright legal regime change, like just a clear and explicit shift in the court's role and self-understanding? So on one hand, yes. I think if you have six people on the court who are very conservative, some of the most conservative legal minds in the country on the court at once, they're going to come up with different outcomes than when there are five or four or three conservative people or self-identified conservative people on the court. So unquestionably, the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett at the end of 2020 has had a huge effect, and we're only seeing the beginning of that. So I wouldn't call it necessarily a regime change so much as this is what six looks like relative to five. Yeah. But on one hand, no, I think there's a lot of continuity between what this court is doing and what previous courts have been doing for decades, if not centuries. So the Supreme Court has had a majority of justices appointed by Republican presidents since 1970. So for over 50 years. And so... What most of constitutional law at this point looks like is what a moderate or conservative Republican thinks it should look like, because that's been the marginal vote on the Supreme Court since 1970. And so, like, the marginal Republicans' positions have shifted a lot. In 1973, before abortion law became such a partisan issue, you can have multiple Republicans sign on to Roe, whereas today, none would. But to say that today's court represents a regime change, I think, just suggests that, you know, a court in which a moderate or a conservative Republican is the swing vote is neutral or good or the what our society demands and that we have now shifted from that into a new era, I think, takes for granted that we did not have to have a country that was led by someone like Anthony Kennedy for 30 years. We could have had many different possibilities, and we just happened to get this one. Well, let me ask 
that question in a different way, which is maybe gets at what I'm really trying to get at here. Is it fair to say that the court had a choice between exercising power and preserving its legitimacy, and it chose to exercise power? I would not adopt the same framing, in part because I think the term legitimacy needs to be defined. Okay. So when the Supreme Court itself has discussed legitimacy, the case in which the court gave its longest discussion of the term legitimacy before Dobbs was Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the opinion that had upheld the essential holding of Roe in the early 1990s. And in that case, so three Republican appointees, Anthony Kennedy, David Souter, and Sandra Day O'Connor, authored this joint opinion in which they asked the question, why do people listen to the Supreme Court? Why don't they just treat our opinions as no different from a press release by a conservative senator or a liberal senator? Why do they take our opinions and do things with it? And their answer to that question was legitimacy. And they define the term legitimacy as basically the general understanding among the American public that when the court issues an opinion, what it is doing is engaging in this principled analysis as opposed to just exercising the individual views of the justices. And I think what's most significant about the court's definition of legitimacy is it's not based on the court actually being neutral. It's based on the public's perception that the court is neutral or engaged in something different from politics. Mm. So this court's self-definition of legitimacy is what does the public think we're doing? And so I think from that perspective, yes, today's court had a choice of, do we want to cultivate this public perception that what we are doing is different from, say, what five Ted Cruz's would do if he were on the court? Or you can get a Supreme Court of like former clerks that are currently in Congress, like Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, and add like Mitch McConnell. Like, you take five of them, give them robes and a gavel, is what we're doing different from what they would do. And to the extent that the public believed there is this distinction between the two, then yes, I think that today's court basically does not care about that distinction. And in the Dobbs opinion, Justice Alito explicitly said, it's not our job to care about public opinion. We shouldn't take that into consideration at all. But I think what the court is realizing, especially in the last few weeks, is if you do not care about public opinion and you do something that's extremely controversial, you risk the public turning on you. And eventually, at some point, if you anger enough people, the public will stop listening and start doing something to reform your power. Yeah, it certainly seemed correct that when Amy Barrett arrived at the court, that was kind of the event horizon. Because there's a model of what it would look like if you had very conservative justices dominating the court, but were still trying to operate in a way that preserved legitimacy, for lack of a better word. It's kind of the Chief Justice Roberts model, where he probably shares the policy preferences of the majority here, but was very concerned about proceeding very carefully so as not to explode the opinion of the court in the minds of the public. And this is the thing, and again, this quote from Alito about you know how we can't let our decision be influenced by external factors just seems to me crazy. I mean, I understand that the court should not be subject to the whims of public opinion. It shouldn't be flopping back and forth with the latest polling data. I get that. But to not be concerned at all with public opinion in a democracy seems really 
reckless to me. And I don't quite get why they wouldn't care about that or why they wouldn't care about the long-term legitimacy of their institution. I mean, how can they not see that that institution can't endure without some legitimacy? Or am I just the naive one here? No. And I think your question is actually getting at a second flaw of legal liberalism. Yeah. So one is legal liberalism as a theory of change works so long as members of the Supreme Court are amenable to liberal interpretations of the law. But another really big flaw is that legal liberalism as a theory of change really centers courts and lawyers. It's like the way in which change happens in our society is when you have a law degree and you have the vocabulary to talk with other people with law degrees who went to these elite institutions, and only they have the power to determine what does justice mean. And so Justice Alito, I think, was really cavalier about disregarding public opinion. But Justice Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan agree in principle with that sentiment. So I'm looking through their dissent right now, and there was a line in their dissent that really stood out to me when I first read it. Even if you look at the dissenting opinion by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, they write in criticism of Justice Alito's opinion, quote, we believe in a constitution that puts some issues off limits to majority rule. Right. And that is at the heart of legal liberalism. It's this idea that majorities cannot be trusted in all circumstances. We need to have safeguards in which certain people, like judges and lawyers, are going to make decisions even when they fall in the face of public opinion. And it's just an interesting theory to hold in a democracy that because of the decisions made by a public, and I use the term public really vaguely, like basically 500 or so white men in the 1780s, followed by members of Congress and other white men in the 1860s, because of decisions that they made, we, the American people of 2022, are permanently bound by those decisions. The majorities cannot reinterpret what those past publics did, and only judges have the power to conduct this sort of interpretation. And I think that's a really dangerous theory, too. I personally do not believe in a constitution that puts some issues off limits to majority rule in the sense that to the extent that the American people today cannot come up with their own answers to these really fundamental questions, I don't think that's democratic. I think that's something very different. And so... For me, the real divide between the two positions or between the pro-Dobbs or anti-Dobbs positions shouldn't be the conservatives believe in majority rule and the liberals think that some issues are off limits to majority rule. I think that's a losing proposition. Rather, I think a far more principled and persuasive framing is the majority thinks that despite what previous publics and Congress has done, this sort of decision should be decided by state legislatures as opposed to at the federal level. Whereas the liberals on the court roughly think that this is a decision that should be decided at the federal level to the extent that there's any decision about it at all. And I think that that's the position that the left is going to have to take in the near future is, you know, it's not as though any issue is off limits. Democracy itself is not off limits to majority rule. The question is, which majority is going to get mobilized and organized to fight for and defend the rights it wants to protect. 
and relying on lawyers to do all of the work of protecting fundamental rights like voting and reproductive justice is, I think, a losing proposition. Is it time to give up the idea that the Supreme Court is somehow not political? That's after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Fox. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know, there's, as always, there's theory and practice, and there's the idea of the court, and then there's the reality of the court. If for whatever reason or reasons, the court has evolved into an explicitly political branch, one that is beyond accountability. That is clearly not what the framers intended. And it seems like we can now dispense with this fantasy that the court isn't a political institution, right? I mean, it is just politics and power all the way down. Or am I overstating it? No, I don't think that you're overstating the point. I guess one aside is I'm not surprised that so many people on the left have responded to this decision by <laughs> looking at the court with new and uh, somewhat hostile eyes. Right. Just as during the 1960s, when most of the judges self-identified as liberal, conservatives held up signs on their front lawn saying, impeach Earl Warren. So hostility or sympathy toward the court certainly depends on what is it the court is doing. But I think that you're right in general that that itself shows that the public's perception of what the court's doing 
in some ways depends on whether the court is tracking national public opinion. And you might say, well, in general, the court's done a great job tracking public opinion over the past two and a half centuries. And so, in general, the court should have the power to make these fundamental questions because it is following public opinion. But I think if we were like in Chile, where they are redefining their constitution and about to vote on a new constitution, if we, the American people in 2022, were to come up with a new constitution, I would find it really odd if most people thought, you know, when it comes to these really important questions going forward, let's just allow Harvard and Yale and one Notre Dame graduate decide these questions. Specifically, people who have been selected on the basis of their lack of public positions around these most important questions before they are chosen for these lifetime appointments. I just don't think in a democracy that this sort of power structure is how we would define our institutions going forward. And so the mere fact that the court has at times tracked public opinion is, I think, no more persuasive than in an authoritarian country where the authoritarian leadership happens to track public opinion. That's different from a leadership that is accountable to the public. And so I think to the extent that there is a myth that the court is apolitical and that myth is being dispelled, I welcome that change in attitudes. But what I hope it accompanies is a fresh look at all American institutions to the extent that they're not living up to our democratic potential. Because I think democracy is a really important value. And the United States as a whole is just missing democracy in a lot of its institutions that are making really important decisions. Right. And that is very important. And my point about this theory-reality distinction also applies to another supposedly co-equal branch of government, Congress. Absolutely. There's a complicating factor here, right? I mean, the court is always talking about tossing things back to the states or back to Congress so that Congress can formally authorize this or that law or whatever. I mean, this is how the whole separation of powers thing is supposed to work. But of course, in reality, you know this, I know this, people listening know this, Congress is a broken dysfunctional institution that can't do anything, really. And conservatives have systematically taken over state legislatures all over the country in recent years. That seems like a quite a problem here, right? Because what's happening is if Congress isn't doing its job, making laws, governing, then there's a void. And it appears that the court, a minoritarian court, is filling that void. Yes, I think that's correct. One observation that's important not to forget is Congress's current inertia was not all self-induced. Mm. A lot of where we find ourselves is a consequence of the Supreme Court's invalidation of federal laws. Mm. So Congress enacted a scheme of campaign finance restrictions to keep money out of politics. Yeah. The Supreme Court has systematically struck these down. Congress enacted voting rights legislation to protect people of color and people in rural communities who have a hard time getting to the polls. The Supreme Court has invalidated, to a huge extent, the Voting Rights Act and other protections, or at least narrowly interpreted it to the point of insignificance. Congress has enacted all sorts of laws to protect clean air, to allow administrative agencies to take care of really important questions. The Supreme Court has struck this down. So I think you're absolutely right that 
Congress is not as democratic as I would like it to be, and it's certainly not legislating as much as I would like it to. But a lot of the cause for that is the nation's cultural acceptance of the court's role in invalidating legislation on the ground that the court doesn't think it's quote-unquote necessary and proper. That said, going forward, given where we find ourselves, yeah, I too have a hard time imagining that the United States is going to emerge from this economic and climate catastrophe and this catastrophe with reproductive justice and everything else with the Congress that we have at the moment. Mm. And one really funny thing to me as someone who teaches constitutional law is I certainly learned in middle school, I think many people learn when they first learn about the Constitution, that before the U.S. Constitution, there was a different fundamental law, the Articles of Confederation, and it didn't work very well. And lots of intellectuals and lawyers of the late 18th century wrote all of these articles and letters complaining about it, like, Congress can't legislate. It's so broken. A minority of states can just veto anything that the Congress wants to do. We need a Congress with more energy. We need a Congress with more power. We need a, a national legislature that can legislate. But they could not change the Articles of Confederation because the amendment process was so difficult to overcome that what eventually happened was an extra-legal convention proposed a completely different constitution that didn't comply with the Articles Confederation and basically convinced enough voters in the states to that a change was necessary. And so the general story told about the origins of the U.S. Constitution was we had a constitution that did not work. Everyone saw how broken Congress was. And so this new constitution was meant to have a more functional Congress. And, you know, I think that's just like a really important story to remember today, as many people today would read something that like Alexander Hamilton or James Madison wrote and think it's applicable in the 21st century, that we today have a broken Congress that doesn't represent the American people, that, you know, minority perspectives from like certain states like Wyoming are just overrepresented relative to the perspectives of people in California, and that a change is needed. But the difficulty of the amendment process, I think, has precluded any reevaluation that we can do better. In your testimony to Biden's Supreme Court commission last year, which I strongly encourage anyone listening to go and read, it is very clear and very compelling. You lay out the history of the court as a fundamentally anti-democratic institution. Is that the role it is supposed to play in our system, or has it evolved? this way? I think the term supposed to play is hard because it sort of raises the question, according to whom? <laughs> Fair. Yeah. I think there is one widely shared perspective about the court, particularly among legal liberals, like the dissenting opinion in Dobbs, that the role of a Supreme Court or the courts in general is to stop majorities when they do bad things. So, in general, majorities of the population will do good things, and they recognize that certain principles like free speech and equality are really important, but eventually the majorities will get corrupted by a demagogue or something and override these principles. And so it's the role of courts to step in and say, actually, you're wrong, you're disagreeing with commitment that prior generations or that you made earlier. So it is the role of the court to be anti-democratic in that respect. And many scholars have argued that this role is actually consistent with democracy, 
particularly to the extent that a democratic public empowers the court to take this role in the first place, or that the court's decisions ultimately result in more political equality. And I think that that perspective is relatively new. That's like a 20th century perspective on why the court is consistent with liberalism, but it's certainly widely shared. But I think if you just look at, well, okay, in evaluating the specific question of when the Supreme Court has reviewed federal legislation, is it true that the court has stood in the path of legislation that harmed political minorities? Is it true that the court has really advanced or protected these fundamental values that we all share, but that were temporary blips in which majorities were so passionate that they failed to recognize them? And empirically, I just don't think it's the case. There are certainly examples from a liberal perspective in which the Supreme Court has stepped in and invalidated some federal laws that, from today's perspective, we might regard as bad. Like, the Supreme Court invalidated the Defense of Marriage Act, for example, of 1996, a law passed during the Clinton administration, which had the effect of denying all sorts of federal benefits to same-sex couples. But if you just like look through the past 230 years, there's really only a handful of decisions like that. And those decisions, I think, have to be weighed against many, many more examples in which the court has invalidated pro-democratic legislation or at least sat on its hands while Congress enacted really horrific legislation. So I mentioned before, the court has invalidated voting rights legislation. It's invalidated campaign finance legislation. It's invalidated a federal income tax, invalidated the first anti-discrimination laws. Meanwhile, it upheld the Chinese Exclusion Act. It upheld the internment of Japanese Americans. It upheld the Muslim ban most recently. You know, the court does not have a good track record at actually matching what the theoretical account of the court's role should be particularly when looking at the court's evaluation of federal legislation. Putting those two things together, I don't think that the theory about the court's role as an anti-democratic body in a democracy being good is very persuasive. I think whoever adopts that theory has the burden of proving that, yes, if you put an anti-democratic body in the middle of a democracy, it's going to come up with better outcomes. They have the burden of proving that. Yeah. And I think based on historical evidence, that burden just hasn't been satisfied. Is reforming the court possible? That's after one last short break. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm. 
Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? Well, there has been a lot of conversation in recent years, <laughs> for very obvious reasons, mostly on the political left, about potential reforms to the court. Everything from stripping the court of judicial review, which is its power to decide whether a law by the government is constitutional. People talk about court packing. People talk about term limits for justices. Do any of these reforms make sense to you? And perhaps even more importantly, do you see a viable path to passing any of them? So let me start by saying, yes, I do see a viable path to a good outcome. So <laughs> I don't want to hide the ball. I think we don't have to live in this world. But before getting there, I guess I would just sort of start with first principles, which is if we live in a democratic society, we have these fundamental disagreements about questions like how many guns should be available and who should be able to obtain abortions in what context and what should we do about this impending climate catastrophe? Which institutions should be responsible for resolving these fundamental disagreements? And it's no answer to say, well, whatever the Constitution says, in part because the Constitution just does not provide clear answers about it, and in part because I think even that has to be justified. Like, why should we, in 2022, responding to 2022 crises, turn to a document written by people who really did not have any way of anticipating what we are currently undergoing? And so for me, looking around at well, what do other countries do, in most other democratic societies, national legislatures are responsible for making these determinations, particularly democratically responsive national legislatures. So from the United Kingdom to France and Germany and New Zealand in general, these sorts of questions are decided by national legislation. And national legislation enacted through far more democratic legislatures than the United States Congress. And so I would love to see a more democratic Congress. I would love to see reforms to Congress to make it more democratic. But even the Congress we have now, I think, is a better answer to the question of who should resolve these questions than another institution like state legislatures or local governments or neighborhood associations or federal or state courts. But I think that's the real question, is like which of these institutions should be responsible for resolving these fundamental questions in a democracy? And so I think a national legislature is what I would turn to, particularly one that is the beneficiary of democratic reforms enacted by that national legislature like a Voting Rights Act. And so from that first principle, I think the best method of advancing court reform are federal laws enacted by the national legislature that both make it more democratic as well as reduce the power of other institutions that are not as democratically representative, that do not treat all members as political equals, and prevent them from interfering with the national legislature's output. And so, you know, I just mentioned that the history of the Supreme Court's evaluation of federal legislation, just, it's a terrible track record. 
And so in practice, I don't think there is a reason why we should necessarily give a federal court the power to invalidate national legislation. And from a theoretical perspective, I don't think there's any democratic reason why you would want unelected officials making these determinations that, you know, I'm sorry, but a Voting Rights Act is not, quote unquote, appropriate. There's just nothing about being a judge or going to Harvard Law School that gives you any expertise as to whether a Voting Rights Act is appropriate or not. It's just fundamentally a question that in a democracy, I think, should be resolved by uh, a community of political equals. And so getting there, I think, is just going to require Congress over time to enact legislation that protects fundamental rights, that makes itself and the rest of the country more democratic. And it also keeps other institutions, whether state legislatures or federal courts, from advancing their own more parochial or anti-democratic views and trying to enforce those over the will of the American people. I think what that sort of legislation will likely look like is when Congress enacts laws like a new Voting Rights Act or like the Women's Health Protection Act or like a new Clean Air Act that just prohibits courts from undermining that legislation. So the Constitution that we currently have gives Congress the power to regulate the jurisdiction of federal courts, gives Congress the power to regulate what a federal court can do when it sees a law that the individual judge doesn't like. In the 1930s, when federal judges were going around enjoining labor unions, Congress thought this should not be what federal judges do. So they just took away the power of judges to enjoin labor unions, absent certain conditions. Congress could do the same thing when judges review federal laws or when it tries to interpret laws like the Clean Air Act. So I think there's a lot that Congress could do to just limit the power of courts to interfere with the will of a democratic nation, just like almost every other peer democracy does. Like, this is not a radical position anywhere else in the world except for in the United States of America. Yeah. And that's an important point, isn't it? <laughs> we are a bit of an outlier. Yeah, it's a huge outlier. You know, one of my interesting takeaways from the Supreme Court Commission last year is just how much of an outlier the United States is. Just no other country has as difficult to amend a national constitution as the United States combined with a Supreme Court that can invalidate national legislation for its failure to comply with that constitution. Just no other country comes close. Every other country either has a national constitution that can be easily amended, or it doesn't give its courts this sort of power that we give our courts. And so the consequence is, even when Congress is engaged in a really good faith interpretation of the constitution, it thinks, like, I'm reading the constitution as well as anybody. I think it empowers us to protect the right to vote. You can still have a federal judge just disagree and say, actually, I don't think the right to vote should be protected. I just disagree with your reading of it. And the only way I can get reversed is by another federal judge, not by you, the American people. That's just a really odd system. It is. And you'd posted a thread on Twitter a few weeks ago that really made me pause and reflect. You were saying that, and this is kind of the idea of legal liberalism that you were explaining earlier, we had this idea of the law as an institution that will almost magically save us. But it's just judges. It's just people. And you ask, what are we supposed to do when the people in charge just disagree that people should have contraception rights or healthcare or a livable, sustainable environment? And I've been arguing for a while and very recently in a book that the age of 
liberalism is over, that the technological infrastructure that made liberal democracy the dominant game in town is just kind of gone. And now one of our two parties just isn't playing the liberal democratic game. And if I'm right, even a little right, the court won't save us, the law won't save us, our institutions won't save us. The only thing that will save us is people organizing, mobilizing, and building power. I mean, the law can help, but ultimately, only power will get the people you want in the positions you need to force the changes you want. And I think you're right that the only path to that is collective action. I totally agree. And one of my favorite philosophers teaches at the University of Michigan, Elizabeth Anderson, and she recently wrote a book about the American workplace in which she describes the typical American workplace as just a really anti-democratic government. It's a government in which bosses have almost unfettered control over workers. Workers' only reciprocal power is the power to leave and go work someplace else, which depends on economic circumstances like the job market. And so just in the workday, the typical American spends most of their time in a place that is not democratically representative. But if she's right, and if the typical workplace is just a place of tyranny where bosses just basically exercise tyrannical control over workers, you might think, wow, you know, this is terrible. There's nothing that can be done. Yet, in this country and in virtually every other country in the world that has a history of a labor movement, what the labor movement shows is what are you supposed to do to improve your conditions in a context in which the people in charge or the law in charge does not treat you as a political equal? And the answer is, well, even when you are formally excluded from a form of government, you still have the power to organize. You still have the power to withhold your support. And that may come at the cost of violence. It may come at the cost of persecution. There could be good reasons why people don't organize. But the law itself, even when the law is pitted against organizing, this has failed to stop the labor movement from spreading around the world in all sorts of tragic and terrible contexts. And so for me, I see the labor movement as a real inspiration, not just for achieving policy ends, but for thinking about how is the United States as a whole going to become more democratic. Like if farm workers in just a really tyrannical workplace can nevertheless organize and fight for their rights and win contracts that recognize new rights that previously did not exist, then I'm confident that they have something to teach us about how the American people as a whole are going to create a better government that is more democratically responsive and recognizes rights that the law and the courts fail to. What's next for this court? Are there any cases or potential cases on the horizon that worry you? Yeah, so, I mean... (laughs) I'm worried about all sorts of things. I think the case that is getting the most attention right now for next term is a case involving the independent state legislature theory, which is a name for a legal doctrine that dates back at least to 2000 during the litigation around Bush versus Gore. So during the 2000 presidential election, as listeners may recall, there was a recount in Florida in which the Florida Supreme Court most of whose members had been appointed by prior Democratic governors, were allowing a recount to go forward. But the Florida legislature, which was Republican-controlled, was sort of against this recount. And Bush's legal team went to the Supreme Court 
and basically said the Florida Supreme Court should not have the power to conduct this sort of recount because it is not the legislature. Looking at the text of the Constitution, which gives certain prerogatives to the state legislature to make time, place, and manner regulations around elections or around presidential elections to appoint electors, their legal argument was the legislature is so important that state courts interpreting state law or state courts requiring state legislatures to abide by state law should not be listened to. And that argument won the approval of only a handful of the conservative judges. So Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote a concurring opinion that was like, I agree with this argument. But the rest of the court in the majority on different grounds agreed with the Bush team and ended the recount. But so this argument has just been sitting there of state legislatures alone, even when state legislatures are doing something truly wacky, like after an election, changing the rules or making up new laws that don't seem democratic at all. Anything the legislature does is what the rules should be. So what that means in context is you can imagine a situation in the 2024 presidential election in which it looks like candidate Donald Trump is about to lose and the Republican-controlled Wisconsin legislature enacts a law that says our electors are going to go to Donald Trump regardless of the outcome of the upcoming election, regardless of state law, regardless of any rules that might prohibit us from doing this, we're just going to award our electoral votes to Donald Trump, even if the popular vote votes for the Democratic candidate. And this theory, the independent state legislature theory, says, yes, the legislature should be able to do that because the legislature itself is the only institution within the state that matters for determining the rules of an election, even if the legislature is violating the state constitution, even if the legislature admits we're violating the state constitution. And so I think that this theory as a whole puts into perspective how in the 21st century, many people in the United States think we live in a democracy. Democracy is good. It's great when we are a community of political equals who all have the same share in what decisions should be made, when pitted against the text of the U.S. Constitution, which was written by people who did not all believe in democracy and did not think democracy was the most important value. And, you know, sometimes people on the right say, like, oh, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. And I think that that's really pernicious little phrase. But what they're on to is, yeah, like Alexander Hamilton and James Madison were not 21st century Democrats. And so the document they wrote does not reflect our values in the way that it would if we were to rewrite the document today. And for the court to embrace this really novel theory to make our elections less democratic, it's possible that courts will say it's constitutional, even though I don't think anyone would say that it's democratic for a state legislature just to change the election rules in the middle of an election to rule in favor of one candidate over another. It seems very authoritarian to me. Yeah. What could go wrong? (laughs) Well, Professor Nico Bowie, it has been a pleasure to have you here. I know you're busy, a new father. We really appreciate you coming in and sharing your expertise and helping us make sense of all this. So thank you. Oh, no, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. 
Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Can we improve? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.